that perfect decision doesn't exist. And in fact, that is the really inhibitor or governor on why people aren't making smarter, faster, you know, more agile decisions because they're looking to make, to be certain. And that certainty is a myth regardless of how much data you have. So when you think around decision-making, it's not about getting it right. It's about making the best decision you can at the moment and then having the really the courage and the conviction when you get new information, the ability to, to pivot. Welcome to the Strategy and Leadership Podcast, the podcast that brings you practical advice, lessons, and stories from senior leaders and thought leaders from around the world. The Strategy and Leadership Podcast is brought to you by SME Strategy, working with organizations around the world to create and implement their strategic plans. To learn more, visit smestrategy.net. Hey Welcome to today's episode now, of the Strategy host, and Leadership Podcast. Have I a special treat for you? We've got a three-for-one offer on the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. I'm joined by Paul Magnoni, Oded Netzer, and Christopher Frank. They've just written a book. They've got amazing backgrounds and experiences, and and we're going to have a ball of a time having this conversation on the Strategy and Leadership Podcast today. So thanks for joining us. Paul, do you want to start us off with uh, who you are and what brought you to today? Sure. Uh, Paul Mignoni, I am head of Global Strategic Insights. At, no, actually, I'm not. That's Chris's job. This is the problem. We do this so often that we're talking about each other. I'm head of Strategic Alliances at Google. And uh, Chris and I wrote a book previously, as we're laughing hysterically here. Chris and I wrote a book previously, which led us to Oded. Chris? So, uh, thank you, Paul. <laughs> 27 years in uh, data analytics and uh, market research, working at um, just some amazing global iconic brands, Microsoft and American Express. Also have experience with two startups and consulting and my whole focus is really how do we make smarter decisions with information? Um, Oded? Hi, I'm uh, Paul Mignoni. Uh, just kidding. Oded Netzer. Um, I'm the uh, Vice Dean for Research at Columbia Business School. Um, I'm also a professor uh, of business at Columbia Business School. I split my time between uh, Columbia as, an, as a professor, as an academic, and being an Amazon scholar, working at Amazon in, the, in their advertising analytics. I'm a nerd working on all of these data type of issues. Uh, but more generally, what I do for a living is I preach and practice data-driven decision-making, preach as part of my teaching practice, as part of the research and consulting that I'm, that I'm doing. Awesome. Thank you, gentlemen. And those of you listening might be thinking that we're just sitting, you know, in a room ourselves after maybe a couple beers, just, you know, shooting the shit and having a podcast. But everybody's, you know, located in, in their own uh, respective places. And it's just really cool to see, you know, the I call it high power. You guys bring a lot of it, stuff to the table. And so I'm really curious to pick your brains. Odette, why don't I start with you? What had you want to write this book and collaborate with these two gentlemen? And we won't go too far into the second part, but what had you want to write this book with these guys? Yeah, be careful what you're asking for there. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, so we've been actually been, been teaching this for quite a while. And I've been teaching at Columbia for 18 years now. And at some point, you know, seeing first more from the perspective of students, how uh, and leaders and leaders to be in, in, in the MBA program, 
are struggling with making decisions with data, are struggling with approaching data as they're making decisions and they are preparing to be leaders in the world. And then I've met these two beautiful gentlemen, Chris and Paul, who have written together a book about the world of big data. And as we were thinking through it, we were saying, well, yeah, big data has already came, meaning their book was right around the time big data arrived. Now we've been a few years after that, the dust started settling on big data, and yet we are still struggling with decisions. And that's that's when um, actually Chris and Paul both were guest speakers in, in my class around customer insights. And we said, you know what, there is a point here. There is something really to investigate here. Why don't we make better decisions? And that's how we came together, have been teaching this material for the last seven years. And a couple of years ago decided, well, I think we are ready to put it in writing. And that's how the book came about. Awesome. Uh, Chris, you know, as I look at your career and the time stages that they're at, so Microsoft, et cetera, you know, going through the, call it evolution and access of data or data. And now you're at a point where data is arguably commoditized or at least widely accessible to everybody, small businesses and big businesses alike. What should our listeners know about understanding data, interpreting data, and potentially, actually, I'll just stop there and I'll ask Paul the next question. Yeah, so, so Anthony, uh, yeah, it's not only about the accessibility of, of data, it is no longer an option not to lead in a data-driven world. So, you know, it is not, you know, one thing we talk about is, talking about that evolution, in the past, you know, it's like you had to go to math camp in order to really engage with, with, with all the information and, and data at your fingertips. Today, the, the ability to access that data has become easier. The tooling around it to manipulate it um, has become cheaper and more pervasive. And the expectation that you as a leader or future leader will, you know, make data-driven decisions is, is expected. So that is foundational. I think the other interesting change that has happened over this time is, you know, there, there's this saying, Anthony, what gets measured gets done. Um, well, these days, everything is measured, yet people continue to, to swirl. So as we thought about this book and as we, you know, said, OK, not just what we teach in the classroom, but what we practice every day. You know, Oded works at, at Amazon. He's an Amazon scholar. Paul's at Google. I'm at American Express. What are the real practical lessons and how do we actively, you know, in our day jobs, grow and build teams and teach them really, you know, I guess, uh, approachable tools that they can use to become better leaders and make smarter decisions? It's not about the data. It's about about the uh, the decision. Mm. So. Uh, Paul, I forgot my original question, but let's say data can be manipulated anyway. And Christopher mentioned that, that, you know, talking about working with teams. Do you ever see it that different teams interpret data differently and it drives different decision making? Is that ever a challenge that you see? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, first off, you can take any piece of data and torture it to agree that it committed any felony you wanted to admit to, right? It's data can be manipulated. The question is, how do you uh, interpret that data? How do you defend against that manipulation? And then to your question, people see it different ways, right? You could take that same piece of information and 
the collective experience of a, of a team of people, of the individuals on that team, and of their professional training will lead that set of marketers, for example, to look at that same piece of data differently than the sales team or the engineering team, right? It's like the old cartoon of five wise men all with blindfolds all touching an elephant and seeing and believing different things. So the key is how do you create a uniform approach across your organization to get past that ambiguity, to cut right through that? And so that's what we talk about in Decisions Over Decimals. How do you build that toolkit for yourself and how do you get your organization to behave in the way that you want it to when it comes to the data and the ambiguity? Cool. And just to continue on that, where do they start? What is the first consideration for teams as they look to like harness the data at their disposal? And I guess I'll open that up to anybody unless you want to cover that one, Paul. Yeah, I mean, the first place you start is asking powerful questions, which is chapter number one in the book uh, as well. But uh, but truly, it's, it's if you will, it's, it's the thread that goes throughout the book is asking the right questions of the data. Asking the right question, not just of the data, but of yourself. What is the problem I'm trying to solve? Can I hone in on the essential question? Spend enough time with the problem before you jump into a solution mode, before you jump into dealing with data. And this is actually a problem that became worse with the arrival of big data. Because with the arrival of big data and the availability of data, we have the tendency to say, oh, we have so much data. Let's start jumping straight into it. And we can spend a lot of time uh, torturing the data, as Paul mentioned, looking for some answers for questions we never asked. Mm. And, and this temptation of, of jumping straight into it because it feels like you are working. When you analyze data, it feels like working. When you sit in a room and think about what the problem is, it doesn't feel like you're working, but actually you are working. As Albert Einstein said, I'm, it's not that I'm smart, I'm just spending more time with the problem. Mm. It's interesting that you say that. So today I was talking to somebody in Bosnia about my Google Analytics. And I said, I, and as an entrepreneur, I wear a lot of the hats. And I was looking and I was like, this is way different than when it was in 2016. It's more complex. There's more data sets, which is good. But one could argue that because it's more complex, you have a greater likelihood of not getting it right, which would be beneficial for somebody who's incentivized to push more ads. Now, I'm not saying that. I am saying that the more data there is, it's easy to get lost on a path if you're not hyper-focused on the problem statement or the core issue that's there. Christopher, from your experience and like outside of the book, where have you seen teams that you've led with either do this really well, understanding the problem and how do they go through that or do that poorly? And if you have a, a case study or, or anything that you've seen that managers should avoid. Yeah, I'm happy to, to tackle that question, Anthony, but uh, I, you just said something I'd love to go back to that I think is, is essential. You said getting it right. You know, and, and I think that is at the really the heart of why people struggle. It's not about the amount of information. People are looking to, quote unquote, get it right or what or they, they are seeking the perfect decision. And there is a, a fallacy that with the more data you have, it will enable you to find that perfect decision. And for, for the listeners, let's just be clear from what we have taught, what we have 
you know, experience on the front lines, what we have seen, what we write about in, in the book, that perfect decision doesn't exist. And in fact, that is the really inhibitor or governor on why people aren't making smarter, faster, you know, more agile decisions because they're looking to make, to be certain. And that certainty is a myth, regardless of how much data you have. So when you think around decision-making, it's not about getting it right. It's about making the best decision you can at the moment and then having the really the courage and the conviction when you get new information, the ability to, to pivot. And if you embrace that mindset around decision-making, you will really stand out as a leader. You will really set the example on how to be a, a better decision-maker and you will build a team and kind of transitioning to, to your question, you will build a team of decision makers that, that really shine. So, you know, that is something that I've seen regardless of the organization, whether I work in, you know, financial services, whether I work in technology or, or startups, the best team you can build are, you know, people that, you know, don't have the answer, but ask the question. And if there's one skill that I would, you know, I continually look to to build in teams is, you know, the skill to ask questions. So that's the first skill. And when you think about team building, I think the second skill is what Odette said is spending the time and being willing to invest the time to frame the problem. So I think between those two, and there is a technique that we talk about um, in the book called IWIC, I wish I knew. And that very specific question is the starting point to enable any team to work with any internal client or external stakeholder or colleague to start to frame the problem. And I wish I knew, or we uh, abbreviated as IWIC, is like, you know, I'm not coming here to talk to you about data. I'm not here to talk to you about, you know, how many interviews we've done and statistical confidence and you know, pivot tables or modeling, leave that, you know, to the side. What do you wish you knew if you could make, you know, what what answer do you want? What question do you need me to answer in order for you to make a confident decision to move forward? Mm. So that's one thing I, I really emphasize. And we talk about extensively in the class and in the book, is this concept of IWIC, I wish I knew. Hey, Anthony here. One of the things I don't talk too much about on the podcast is what we do at SME Strategy. So I wanted to let you know that if you and your team are thinking about getting together you know, this winter or even in the new year for strategic planning, that we'd be happy to have a conversation to see how we might be able to help your team walk through the strategic planning process and make sure that your people, your strategy, your culture are on the same page. One of the most exciting parts about the work that we do is being able to lead people through a proven process to help them get to where they want to go. If you're interested about that process, our video about it on YouTube just hit over a million views. So be sure to check that out. Let us know what you think. Uh, but most importantly, I wanted to let you know that if you are looking for somebody to partner with your team to support everybody in getting aligned, moving forward towards a clear set of goals and objectives, and really making sure that you have the foundations for that next stage of growth, that we can partner with you to do that. 
whether that's through an offsite strategic planning session or, you know, follow-up support services to keep you accountable, to help your team grow and develop, or really to lead a full transformation. So if you're interested, check out smestrategy.net. You can check out our about page, our services page. It'll tell you more about how we do things. And I'd be happy to have a conversation with you to see if we're a good fit to help. Thanks so much. I appreciate you listening to the podcast. And now let's get back into the episode. Awesome. That's actually the title of my first book. I wish I knew. So that's good. Paul, what have you seen in terms of processes that are, that find that good enough? That like good enough to make your teams or the people around you make a decision or something that you use in addition to IWIC to make good enough decisions? Hmm. Well, what have I seen? I've seen broken systems, right? People don't do this well. And when you think about it, just take a step back and say, well, what is a decision? And a decision is change. And people are uncomfortable with change. And when they're uncomfortable, they retreat to their comfort zones. Some people retreat to spreadsheets, data and more data. And then when we're they're done with that, they want your data. Other people say, you know what? I, I won't be able to parse the data in time. And I'm not a math person, but I'm going to go with my gut feel. And so the systems are part of the problem because the systems act as silos. And so good decisions are about navigating that ambiguity and zooming in and out and using your left brain and your right brain. And certain parts of your organization are more left versus right brained in how they process the information and correlate all of that together, synthesize all of that together. And that's what organizations aren't doing. They're not synthesizing well. I think product teams, good product teams do it well. I think marketing organizations have to do it well or else look at all the ads that are out there and look at all the marketing campaigns that are out there. And you see the ones that are landing and you see the ones that aren't. The ones that are landing, they've thought through, right? The, they've thought through the programs. They realize here's an opportunity, and we've validated it with the analytic view, but here's the human side of it. And so they bring it together. Product teams that build a good product bring it together. Most don't. I think here the the balance between strategic and operational, you can be really, really busy just doing a bunch of stuff, but if you're not clear on that outcome. And it was really interesting, at least in my brain, where I tuned into that left brain, right brain, where I see people who like avoid making a decision because they don't want to commit to something, but they're like, okay, like, let me talk to more people. And I'm like, okay, balance between speed and getting it out the door and uh, actually getting it done. By the way, Robert, if you're listening, I'm talking to you. What else are you guys seeing in the marketplace uh, around this data and what should our listeners, you know, take away as they, you know, bring this concept back into their organizations? A couple of things I want to comment on, on both what Paul said and what you just said. Uh, there is a name to, to Robert that we, we call Robert Seymour. Uh, who is the Seymour? Seymours are the people who sit in meetings and the only thing they ask for is, I want to see more data. Mm. You can postpone any decision with requesting to see more data, right? And, and we see it over and over again. The more data we have, the more people say, well, but if we look at more data, then we can make a decision. 
we can, again, we can delay things forever. Uh, going back maybe even to your, to your earlier question on, on when is it good enough? I'll tell you when it's not good enough, uh, which is a statistician approach to it. The statistician approach to good enough is this 95% level confidence, this p-value 0.05 that, that is being flashed at, at, at us, right? I mean, literally what that means is that once out of 20 times that you make whatever statement, you'll be wrong. Now, let's think about a business decisions. One out of 20 times being wrong. That's beautiful for most decisions, right? One out of 10, not bad. Four out of five times being right, pretty good. Statisticians, their ears are burning with this 0.2 level of significance, right? We don't ask ourselves enough what, good, what is good enough, right? We don't ask ourselves enough, you know, if I'm sending a shuttle to space, 0.95% confidence, blowing it up one out of 20 times, that's horrible. If, I, if I'm recommending you movies on Netflix, being right eight out of 10, I'm a hero. So it really depends on what problem you're solving. We cannot have a universal level of how, what is good enough. It depends really on the problem that you're solving. And don't let statistician define that for you. It's your role as a leader to define what's good enough in terms of the confidence that you need. It doesn't come from you know, normal distributions and, and statistics. And, and maybe back to, 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 you were talking about this balance, right? I mean, the way we call this balance is a method that we call in a framework that we call quantitative intuition. People tend to think about information and intuition as opposites, as oxymorons, right? And our view is that in order to get it right, particularly at the leadership level, you have to combine the data, the information together with, the, with, with intuition. You have to strike the right balance, which is the title of the book, the, the subtitle of the book, strike the, the, the right balance between information and intuition. Do not rely only on your gut, but do not rely on the, on the data either. Combine the two to get at, at the right decision. Uh, and, and it's really interesting to think of like the percentage of acceptable, because if you think of like small business owners, if the likelihood of failure was, you know, 95 percent and not, not the other way around, right. would you do it? And I find that when we talk about strategy and we talk about having clear, you know, a vision, clear strategic priorities so that your organization can do the right things. The reason is if they don't have the right thing on paper, they will do nothing because it's risk averse. And so it's interesting, different people's perspective on risk and how they'll employ that to make a decision or not. And how does that balance between the data and the qualitative or the feeling uh, hamper or support your organization's ability to move fast? Paul, anything you want to add uh, from your perspective? I would just add two things. I think strong leaders balance a view of of that risk, but also within the time frame, as Aded was alluding to, and trust. Right. So you coordinate across all those three. That's a good structure. And again, we're trying to provide tools to put in your personal toolkit, and hopefully organizations start to make better decisions over time. The other thing I, I want to highlight is I'm sure some of your strategy uh, listeners spend time with venture capital firms. And if you ask any VC what they really put their money on, it wasn't the technology and the confidence interval that that investment will play out. They invested in the people because the leadership team 
has a good strategy, has a good technology plan. But when they're investing in the people, they they have a sense that those people will work through problems. And those people have a feel for the business, which you know we hear about that over and over again. So I can't think of a number that defines how you have a feel for the business. So good decision makers, whether they realize it or not, are balancing an analytical view and an intuitive view because they're weighing judgment and they're valuing judgment as much as they are valuing and and the human processes around that and your ability to execute that as a teammate, as a, as a, a collaborator. They're balancing that with what do the numbers say? So good decision-making is a, a combination of all of that. Yeah. And I also hear, you know, a balance of the risk tolerance. Some people show up to an airport three hours early. Some will get there like 45 minutes. The data is the same. The plane's leaving at X time. It's how do you deal with that? And then how do your teams and your colleagues look at data to make those decisions and understanding that balance, I think will make a successful or a more successful colleague, um, especially with the abundance of data and access and accessibility of that. Uh, Chris, anything you want to add uh, from your perspective? Yeah. You know, uh, building up what Paul just said, you know, how do you look at those numbers? And, you know, you're right, Anthony, teams come, have different experiences, different sizes, different tenure, different perspectives. And they all come in and, and they look at the same data set and, and they draw different conclusions. And the one thing I, I, I would share is you know, always ask for context whenever you're given a data point. Mm. Context is king and data without context is dangerous. You know, and, and you know, we discuss uh, often um, throughout the book around what is context. So it's easy to say, put data in context. Well, we, we actually define it in uh, decisions over decimals where Context is you triangulate a data point. And the way you triangulate a data point, you look at it in absolute, you look at it over time, and you look at it relative uh, to some benchmark or, or norm. You know, and there's actually a very interesting case study uh, in the book around snow shovel sales in Italy. And there were two Canadian companies and there is this insane snow shovel sale peak. I think it was in Rome. And, you know, it, it was like we sold 4,000 snow shovels. Oh, great. You know, everyone was kind of high-fiving. We sold 4,000 snow shovels in Rome. Well, one, you know, that might be great for Rome. But, you know, if, if you go to, to a Nordic country, 4,000 might, you know, might, might be uh, a, a rounding error. So context is king. The other thing is there's a second company that sold 7,000 snow shovels in Rome. So all of a sudden, you know, that benchmark, you know, that data in context is all relative. 4,000 is nice. Why did, why did your competitor almost get 2X of you? So, you know, if you, you know, one of the key lessons is how you interpret data is, is put it in context. Cannot stress that e e enough for, for your listeners. Yeah, I hear that 100% of data analysts die within 150 years. It's crazy. <laughs> uh, 
I don't know. Uh, the other thing that I actually thought of around that data piece was, uh, and I don't know if it's in the book, was, you know, they talk about like statistically, you should always go for it on fourth down in football, like statistically, whereas nobody does it. I don't know why. I'd have to look it up. But it's interesting how when you said the absolute overtime and then the norms is that it could be totally absolute. It could be the right decision. But if the norm is not to do it, then you're like, advancing that risk tolerance. So it's interesting how different people interpret that and how understanding not only the data, being able to relate it back to other points, but then make sense of it and then make decisions on it in a timely manner is only going to become more of an important skill as we move forward. Uh, last question as we check out. Uh, what is the most interesting part of your respective work these days? What's challenging you? What's really hard on your work right now? What are you most excited about that you want to share with our listeners? So most challenging, exciting, frustrating part of your work right now, not including the book stuff, because the book stuff we know. What do you really love about your, your practice and your work right now? I know, Dad, I'll start with you. Yeah, um, I mean... In my world, a lot of the stuff I'm doing right now is new research that I'm working about. And one of the, the, the research projects I'm working about is hybrid automation. How do we uh, think about automation where part of it is human, part of it is, is a model that making the decision for the human? And what we've, A, one thing we find is that the hybrid works better than, than going all extreme. You tend to think about either robots making all, all decisions or human making all of them. But the, 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 to me, the really interesting and exciting part was to let the machine decide when the machine believes that it would do less well than the human. So if you think about the case, for example, when the machine doesn't have enough data, if the, if the machine realizes I don't have enough data and therefore I don't think I should make this decision because Paul is likely to have better intuition than I would because machines don't have intuitions, humans do, you actually go with the human and, and think about automation at two levels. First, deciding whether to automate. So the machine would say, should I make the decision or is it time to let the human drive? <laughs> and if the machine drives, then how do you drive? The machine makes the decision. How does the machine make it? That's cool. I was just, spoiler alert, watching the movie Hidden Figures. And there's a point where they have like a brand new IBM. IBM got the data wrong. Not IBM, the company, the machine, because it's programs by human. So it's open to interpretation or human error. And then that causes the thing. So that's very cool. Uh, Christopher, what about for you? What's exciting of your work right now? Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I work for an amazing company, 172 year old company. And, you know, what is exciting about it is, is fintech. And, you know, everyone has a relationship with money, you know, whether, you know, and, and everything is, is connections in terms of buyers and sellers and, and e-commerce. So, the industry that I work in is just so dynamic and in terms of, you know, everything from startups to established companies to, to new entrants and the ability to navigate that. And then you layer on the, the, the consumers and consumer mindset and consumer behavior. And, you know, talk about just a really fascinating, energizing space to be in. You know, everyone conducts commerce. And when you think around fintech and how that is really changing your relationship with, with money, how you engage, how you transact, I just think we're, we're scratching the surface on you know, what that industry is going to look like in, in the next five to 10 years. Awesome. 
That's very cool. Paul, and then if you can finish up by showing the book and giving a plug for the book at the end, that'd be great. You, you bet. So I've been fortunate through my years in business to continually work at the cutting edge of technology. 20 years at IBM, some startups, a tour of duty at Deloitte, and now Google in the cloud business. So I've worked across many industries, and I find myself in the past couple of years working with pretty advanced people in healthcare and life sciences. And what's really happening without getting into the detail is that the money from investors for years was going into the dot-coms and all these other areas. The money is now going significantly into biotech. And the understanding of genomes, of DNA, and the ability to program around that means that you can do work in silica rather than the wet work in a lab. And because we can do these things at speed that we've never been able to do before, breakthroughs are coming fast. If you're paying attention to the headlines out there, organizations are changing their strategy around how to tackle problems. If you think of COVID, the short time frame, what seemed like a short time frame to develop the mRNA vaccine was really remarkable. The amount of testing that was done in an extremely, what was perceived as an extremely short period of time, dwarfed the amount of testing for a lot of others, a lot of other problems, polio and others before that. Why? Because you can solve problems different ways. And to see what's happening in that space and to uh, work with those people is uh, pretty remarkable. And it gets you up every day. That's for sure. And bringing it back to the book, again, there's all this technology that's out there, but it's around the decision of how to apply the technology and what problems to solve. So with that, decisions over decimals, striking the balance between intuition and information. You can find the three of us online, Oded Netzer, Christopher Frank, and Paul Mignoni. You can connect with us on LinkedIn. You can go to dodthebook.com. That's for decisions over decimals, thebook.com, DOD the book. Or you can come and visit us at Columbia uh, and see us in person in several modes. We teach in the exec ed program and in the exec MBA program. And the course, uh, I think they both have the same name now, uh, leading in a data-driven world. So a lot of lots of ways to engage and just reach out to us. Awesome. Can I come and sit in a lecture? Is that an open invite? Do I have to check that with Columbia first? For I a, check with Odette. Okay. And there we go. Perfect. Awesome. Well, folks, I think that one of the, first of all, guys, thank you for being here. I think what's really interesting is not only being able to make the decisions to understand the implications, understand the people side of it, but in all three of your examples about what you're excited about, it's moving fast and in a new place. So it's not data analysis. It's not decision-making like it was. It's in a whole new arena where it's being created as we speak. 
It's super exciting. It's super cool to see what you guys are are doing, what you've brought to the table, not only your, you know, uh, however many years of experience that you have, but what you continue to bring to the marketplace. And I really appreciate you guys coming and sharing and uh, just being here and just being so gracious with your insights and your availability. So thank you guys. I appreciate you uh, coming on today. Thanks for having us, Anthony. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Folks, check out the book, Decisions Over Decimals. And as you go through with your team, you know, look at striking that balance between data, decision-making, making the right decision, and try to get alignment with your team to make the best decision for your organization at the time. If you're not clear about what you're solving for, you're never going to solve for anything. And my personal invitation is just be fearless with what you go through, because all these guys are, are moving forward in really amazing endeavors, and there's no reason you guys can't be there too. So I appreciate you watching and listening to this episode of the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. Paul Oded, Christopher, thanks so much for being here. Again, it's been such a pleasure. Look forward to the book. Everyone else, see you next time. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. We post twice a week, so you can count on us for your weekly source of content to help you grow and expand as a leader. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider giving us a review. We read every single one, and it helps us make a better show for you, the listener. Also, it helps more people find the show, which means we can help as many people as possible. We appreciate you listening and following along, and we hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. And as Anthony says, until next time.